This is Radio 316. Does God ever change his mind? Does God ever decide to do one thing and then modify or even reverse that decision somewhere down the line? For many of us, the answer to that is no. We can't imagine that a sovereign, perfect, divine God would ever change his mind. It seems counterintuitive to us. But guess what? There are a number of verses in the Bible that make it look like that's exactly what he does. So how are we to understand the verses that say that God relented or even regretted his prior courses of action? In today's broadcast, we'll look at three possible answers. Chapter 1. Introduction I suppose it goes without saying, but you and I change our minds all the time. In other words, we can make one decision. We can start down one particular path and then change or reverse directions, perhaps only moments later. Now, sometimes this is over small or trivial matters, and sometimes it's over much larger ones. In your own life, you could probably think some occasions where you changed your mind about something, and that change could have been for the better or for the worse. With that said, do you think that God works the same way? Do you think that God is prone to changing his mind or reversing course in the same way that we do? Does God sit around in heaven reevaluating his prior decisions? Does he hem and haw or reconsider things that he has done? Well, no. No is the short answer. If we put on our theologian hats, we know that can't be it. How could an all-knowing, sovereign God decide to do something one moment and then change course the next, as if he suddenly got new information that he didn't have before? It doesn't seem like a perfect, omniscient deity could do such a thing and still be perfect. You see, the job description of God implies perfection. Not indecision, not recalibration, not a God prone to saying, whoops, my bad. At face value, it should seem impossible that a sovereign, omniscient, all-powerful God would ever change his mind. However, to be fair, there's just one problem with that last statement. And the problem is that there are several passages in the Bible where God appears to do just that. There are several passages across scripture where God expresses regret over certain courses of action or where he relented from prior decisions. Now, off the top of your head, if you've read the Bible before, you may be able to think of some examples. Do do any come to mind? Any biblical examples where God appeared to change his mind or his trajectory? Well, one of the most famous examples comes from the book of Jonah. Even if you haven't read most of the Bible, most folks have encountered Jonah. And in Jonah, you've got this wayward, reluctant guy, this prophet who doesn't want to be there, sent to the Ninevites in order to tell them to repent. Now, if you know the story, you know that's not what Jonah did initially. He hated the Ninevites, and so he went in the other direction. And as the story goes, God brought him back with the help of his fishy friend. And by the time we get to chapter 3, Jonah walks into Nineveh. He tells the people to repent or else. Specifically, he told them that in 40 days, the city would be overthrown. Now, do you remember what happened next? Do you remember how the people responded? Well, much to Jonah's surprise and to his chagrin, they repented. They covered themselves in ashes and sackcloth. They said, oh God, forgive us so that we might not die. And guess what? That's exactly what God did. He forgave them. 
Specifically, Jonah 3.10 says this, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. All right, let's stop to take that in for a moment. What happened in Jonah 3? At face value, it looks like God had intended, had fully intended to destroy the people, but then he watched them turn from evil, and so he changed his mind, or he relented of that which he previously was going to do. It looks like, for all intents and purposes, it looks like God was persuaded to take a different course of action than he had originally intended. It looks like he encountered new information, their repentance, and so he switched his plan. But is that an accurate way to describe what really went down? Now, before we answer that, let's consider one other example, a similar one. In the book of Exodus, God had done all sorts of amazing things for the people, including delivering them from bondage. He had miracles and plagues, and he fed them with manna in the wilderness and all that. He had done miracle after miracle. There was plague after plague. He parted the Red Sea, and they thanked him for what he had done. The people thanked him for what he had done by doing what? By bowing down before a golden calf of all the goofy, silly, terrible ideas. Moses goes up the mountain, as you probably recall. He was gone a little too long for their taste, and so they began worshiping this this calf. And as you might expect, God was not a fan, not a fan of this approach. In fact, it made him angry. And so this is what he told Moses in Exodus 32. He says, I have seen this people. And indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. You don't want that on your tombstone. Stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, leave me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? And so the Lord relented from the harm that he said he would do to his people. All right, once again, What is going on here? What in the world is happening in Exodus 32? Did Moses really just talk God off a ledge? Did Moses really prompt God to change his plans or convince God that maybe he was being a little too hasty? And if that's not what happened, which, spoiler alert, it's not, then how do we understand the word relent, the usage of the word relent in this chapter? For that matter, how do we understand the words relent or regret or repent in any of the occasions that are used to describe God's attitude towards his prior actions or decisions? With the time we have available today, which isn't a lot, we're going to consider three competing hypotheses. The first hypothesis is this, that God does indeed change his mind in a way very similar to you and I. The second hypothesis is that he doesn't, is that he does not change his mind and indeed he cannot change it. And the third is that when the words change or relent occur in these passages, that they do not mean what we think they do or how we interpret them to mean, that the terms or phrases are actually literary devices. All right, let's consider all three of these alternatives now. Chapter 2. What if God can change? 
All right, we've already established that there are some passages in the Bible where God seems to decide on a certain path and then reverses course later on. Now, for those who believe that God can or does change his mind, these verses would seem to be rock-solid proof. It's hard to argue with passages like we see in, in 1 Samuel 15, in which God says, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned his back from following me. That sort of passage where God says, I greatly regret that I did something, sure makes it seem like God is reevaluating an earlier decision or even critiquing that decision as if he wishes he could change it. For some folks, this sort of verse strongly suggests God's ability and willingness to change his mind. Now, in the book of Amos, there's another example of this that's worth our time. In Amos 7, God gave the prophet a couple of visions. Now, one of them was of a locust swarm, and the other was a fire, and both of these things would destroy the territory. Now, in both cases, Amos did what? Well, he prayed. He said, God, do not do this. Please, God, do not follow through on this destruction. And in both cases, we read this, that the Lord relented, that God relented from doing what he had intended to do and instead told Amos, it shall not be, it shall not come to pass. Now, at face value, it looked like God had to be talked off the ledge once again by by one of his people, by this prophet Amos. It looked like Amos convinced God through his prayers, through his petitions, to change his mind or at least his course of action. And so for our purposes today, the first hypothesis that we're considering is that when the Bible suggests that God changes his mind, that that's exactly what's going on. Now, folks who hold this view tend to interpret the words, you know, relent or repent as meaning that God has switched his plan, switched from one plan to another. They tend to think that God works through issues the same way we do with trial and error. And this conclusion then informs the rest of their theology. If you believe that God is prone to thinking things through based on new information, then that's going to affect your entire theological system. And you'll adopt things like process theology or open theism, which is even worse if that's possible. Now, I don't have the time to critique those systems in in this broadcast, but suffice it to say that they see God as continually learning or changing not as a God who is perfect now, but as a God who is who's perfecting himself. Not as a God who is being, but as one who is becoming. Do you see the difference between these two words? Now, do you find, as you hear this hypothesis one, that God is capable of changing and growing and learning and all this, do you find yourself in agreement with that? Do you think that God's mind and his nature and decree and everything else associated with him are subject to change or worse yet, evolution? Do you think that God's will is always in flux based on situations and circumstances that are external to himself? But before you say yes, God forbid, before you decide, let's consider the other two alternatives now. Chapter 3. The Immutability of God All right, so what's our secondary hypothesis? Well, our secondary hypothesis is this, that the answer to the question, does God change his mind, is no. Christians who hold this view cannot fathom, nor do they want, a God who is constantly changing or learning on the job. Do you want a God like that? Do you want a God who's learning and might be a better God tomorrow? The reason you don't want that kind of God, it's simple for a lot of reasons, and the least of them is this, because if God can learn or improve his nature or his understanding of things tomorrow, 
then he may understand or discover what a big jerk you and I are and change his mind about us. We could go to bed with him smiling at us tonight and wake up to his frown tomorrow. A God who does this, a God who is changing either his mind or his nature is always going to be a moving target. And that's neither biblical or desirable. The words God and change, they're not theologically compatible. They can't be. To use these two words to describe God is to confound one term in order to accommodate the other. Sort of like when you you hear the phrase jumbo shrimp. If God was given any sort of change, for better or for worse, in his thoughts, his plans, or his nature, if he could change or improve or learn or grow in any capacity, then it suggests that any given moment, including right now, he's not all the God that he's capable of being. He's not perfect, he's just a perfectionist who's trying his best. Well, phooey. I don't know if that's a Hebrew word, but phooey, that's not God. At best, that's God-like. At best, that's God-ish. At best, that's, you know, demi-God. However, the God of the Bible is far better than that. He's what we call immutable. He changest not. In fact, that's exactly what he told us in Malachi 3 when he said this. He said, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This verse, along with others, is the basis for the doctrine of immutability. The doctrine of immutability says that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, which is also a scriptural verse. And trust me, it's a feature. It's not a bug. Dear heavens, we should desperately want God to be unchanging. Because if he could change, like I said a few moments ago, then so could his will or his outlook or his disposition towards you. If he could change, then either you or I might discover that the God we pray to before bed is not the same God that we wake up to. The fact that he doesn't do this, the fact that he won't change his disposition, his plan, or his nature, his will towards us, even when we give him every reason to do so, is the reason why the Israelites or any one of us are not consumed, which was his point in Malachi 3. All right, so we've established that God is immutable. Now, there's a lot of attributes that God has. What other attributes have bearing on today's discussion? Well, again, he has a lot of attributes, but another one of them is perfection. Our God is not only unchanging, but he's perfect just the way he is. And he's the only one who gets to say that. Our God won't improve because he can't improve. And if he could improve, then that would mean that there's a standard above him that he has to continually strive for. And where did that standard come from? You see, if if you believe that sort of thing, if you believe that God can improve and grow and the like, you're kneecapping the word God itself. We believe God means God, that God is perfect. And the very notion that he could change his mind is silly because it suggests that a perfect God could somehow become more godlike, or worse yet, slip in error and then have to stop, correct himself as he comes across new information. Well, for the thousandth time, that's not the way this works. A perfect God does not slip into error, nor does he come across new info. And that's because of another of his attributes, his omniscience. In Isaiah 46, God said this, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all of my good pleasure. 
Now, on the one hand, verses like this suggest that God knows everything. And that's, again, what omniscience means, all-knowing. But Isaiah 46 goes beyond that. It tells us that his knowledge informs his actions. In other words, he not only knows, but he declares what he knows in such a way as to form reality based on that knowledge. He is his own best counselor. No one, not Moses, not Amos, not you, not I, are going to give him information that he does not yet have. To the degree that any knowledge exists, it finds its source, its origin in him. And again, if it's true, then when Moses or Amos or anyone else prayed or pleaded with him in Scripture, they weren't providing him with new information. Whatever the phrase God relented means, and we'll we'll get to that in our next chapter, it does not mean that a finite creature had to somehow educate the Creator with data that the Creator did not already have. All right, let me, let me stop here again for a moment. We briefly looked at two of God's attributes, two or three. And there's a lot more that we could consider, you know, things like his wisdom, impassibility, sovereignty, and, and so forth. But for time's sake, let me just reiterate this. Any hypothesis that introduces change or recalibration into the Godhead ends up deflating the word God of any meaning. Any God whose decree to will can be altered by any source or occurrence external to himself is not God. If outside events or circumstances can cause a deity's decretal will to flip-flop around, then that deity, such as he is, is not really decreeing life's events. He's just reacting to them. And because that idea is foreign to Scripture and foreign to any understanding of what the word God even means, it can't be so. Because the idea of God reacting to rather than decreeing life's events is a theological nightmare, that's why most theologians are partial to the hypothesis that says that he doesn't change. Not his mind, not his nature, and not his decree. However... However, again, if we say that, if we say he doesn't change, it doesn't fix our earlier problem. Our earlier problem still remains. Specifically, we still need to deal with those verses, with those passages that imply or at least strongly suggest a change of God's mind, even if we don't think such a thing is possible. So how are we going to resolve that tension? Well, that brings us to our final and best alternative. Chapter 4, Anthropomorphic Language A few weeks back, I heard a guy talking about his Ford truck, and the way he talked about this truck, you would have thought it was a person. In other words, he referred to this truck using terms like like her or she, and he said things like she's a reliable old girl. Now, what's the point of that kind of language? Well, this is what we call anthropomorphic language. It's the assigning of human qualities to something in order to describe that something in relatable human terms. Now, anthropomorphic language occurs throughout Scripture. One familiar example is in 2 Chronicles, which says that the eyes of God run to and fro across the earth. Now, do we think that God's eyeballs are literally engaged in a staring contest with planet Earth? Probably not. So what does the phrase mean then? What does it suggest? Well, this is a simple way of conveying God's omniscience. A human quality is used to describe the knowledge and the vision of God. Now, another example of this sort of language is when Isaiah 41 says that God upholds us with his righteous right hand. Now, what does that convey? 
Well, it conveys God's protection of his own, of his people. In these sorts of passages, the references to hands and eyes, they're literary devices that convey God's power, his knowledge, and more. And when we see these sorts of phrases in Scripture, we understand this. We understand that they're not meant to be understood literally, but figuratively. No physical hand is literally descending through the clouds and laying hold of us. No literal eyeballs are staring or blinking or winking at us from heaven. These are anthropomorphic terms that put difficult concepts like the omniscience of God in terms that even a child can understand. If you tell a child that God is omniscient, they're just going to shrug at you. That doesn't help them at all. But if you tell a child that God is watching over them, they'll understand that immediately. The phrase, God is watching over you, or his eyes are upon the sparrow, conveys something that is theologically complex in simple and relatable terms. With that said, when the Bible said that God relented from destroying Nineveh, like we talked about in Jonah 3, this is anthropomorphic language. This is a way of saying that God spared Nineveh. God told them to repent, they did so, and so he spared them. Rather than to try to explain to us how Nineveh's repentance was enfolded into the eternal decree of an infinite God, something that we cannot fully understand, the Bible just says that God relented. An infinitely complex decision made in the mind of an infinitely complex God from eternity past is conveyed in a way that even a child can lay hold of it. However, some folks are not satisfied with that. Rather than understanding God's relenting as a literary device, as it's meant to, they insist that God saw Nineveh's repentance, or he heard Moses' prayer, and then he, he gasped in cosmic surprise, and then he recalibrated on the go. Well, given what we already explained about God's attributes, that is Definitely not the case. God knew exactly what the Ninevites would do. As we said before, that's, that's one of the perks of being God. And from eternity past, the Ninevites' repentance had always been enfolded into his decree. It was the same thing when Moses interceded for the Israelites. It was the same thing when Amos prayed. It's the same thing when you pray. God is not shocked by what you say, but rather he enfolds our prayers into his eternal decree before we even open our mouths. Now let's stop for a minute and ask the obvious question. What if people don't open their mouths? What if they don't pray at all? What if Moses hadn't interceded? What if the Ninevites hadn't repented? What effect, if any, do the actions of God's people have upon the decree of God? Well, let's consider that question with our remaining time. Chapter 5, Conditions and the Decree of God. As a parent, there are times when I have to present two outcomes to my kids. First off, the good outcome that's predicated on their obedience. And secondly, there's the, the not-so-good outcome should their obedience falter. In other words, the net effect of doing one's homework or, or one's chores is to receive privileges that you otherwise wouldn't receive. You could say that my parenting style is not governed by my children's will. However, it is conditioned by their response. Well, guess what? God works the same way with us. For example, listen to the conditions that God mentioned in Jeremiah 18. He said, The instant that I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck it up, to pull it down, or to destroy it, if that nation against whom I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I've thought to bring upon it. What God is saying here is that his will for his people is conditioned on their obedience. And he says this throughout scripture. When the people keep God's laws, they're blessed. When they don't, they're cursed. 
And guess what? Sometimes the people dive headlong into those curses, into those judgments, but then something often happens. Either a God-appointed intercessor speaks up for them, or they repent through the working of the Spirit and they turn from their wicked ways. And in those moments, God says in, in Jeremiah 18 and elsewhere, he says, I will relent of the disaster they thought to bring upon them. At face value, this means exactly what it says. God brings about better outcomes than the one that people are otherwise heading toward. What it does not mean is that God says, oh my goodness, the people are doing something I hadn't counted on. I, I guess I better not bring the hammer down upon them today. In conclusion, as we're running out of time here, whenever the Bible says that an immutable, unchanging God has relented or repented or otherwise modified his previously stated plans, this is a literary device that usually implies that the people's actions have brought about a different outcome than they were otherwise heading toward. It is an anthropomorphic term that explains something that we cannot hope to understand in terms that we can. Thank you for joining us for today's study. To check out other sermons or teachings by Dr. Holt, please visit our website at r316.org. This is Radio 316.